there, I'll introduce you real quickly. Good afternoon. I'm here to introduce Dr. Kim Boswell. She's going to be speaking about the first 24 hours of ICU care after cardiac surgery. We're very lucky to have her here at University of Maryland. She did a degree in psychology at the University of San Diego, which I think is helpful to any type of physician. Uh, she went on to Tulane for medical school and survived the shifts through Katrina, cementing her decision to be an EM doctor. Uh, did EM here and then stayed on for a year at Shock Trauma for Critical Care and then decided to stay another year because she loved being a critical care fellow so much and focused on cardiac surgery. So we're very lucky to have her today. Please help me welcome Kim. Hey y'all. Um, so today we're going to be really informal and we are going to kind of touch on a lot of kind of specific principles to the cardiac surgery world and the post-op cardiac surgery patient. Please feel free to stop me at any time if anybody has any questions or if anybody is confused about anything. So we're going to start with a little bit of history about um, cardiac surgery in general. The first heart surgery that occurred was in the late 1800s and it occurred in Norway. Uh, for some reason, which I, is not entirely clear, they did a coronary artery ligation and unfortunately, and not surprisingly, the gentleman died a couple days later of what they called mediastinitis and what we'd probably not call mediastinitis today. Um, a year later, in Germany, they did the first successful, by that I mean he survived. After a gentleman got stabbed in the right ventricle, they repaired it and uh, he did okay. In the United States, the open heart surgery has kind of evolved since the middle of the uh, 1900s and kind of started at the University of Minnesota. Congenital malformation was the initial surgery that was done um, in the early 1950s. A year later, Jefferson Medical School did the, uh, used the first extracorporeal circuit with an oxygenator. Um, so kind of like the first use of ECMO and early bypass in um, cardiac surgery. And then not long after that, Mayo Clinic was the first uh, institution to use what we now consider the heart-lung machine or cardiopulmonary bypass. This was the original um, Mayo Clinic cardiopulmonary bypass machine, and although the, new, the current ones that we use, which is obviously the bottom right, um, look a lot more uh, shiny, the, the idea and the mechanics of it really are very similar to what they used in the um, 1950s and 60s. So specifically, and I think um, the majority of cardiac surgery or the overwhelming number of cardiac surgeries that occur in the United States are uh, cabbages. We're gonna talk kind of about that specifically. The first one was done in um, 1960 and was done at, in the Bronx. It was a single vessel cabbage where one of the internal mammaries was bypassed to the right coronary. And it was interestingly done off bypass, which is something that um, we don't even do routinely necessarily here in the United States now. Um, several years later, the first use of saphenous vein was um, done at Cleveland Clinic and um, obviously that continues to be a, a big use of bypass today or vessel today. Off-pump surgery really kind of um, came into popularity in the 1990s. Its benefits are kind of wide-ranging. Um, decreased blood requirement intraoperatively, decreased ICU length of stay. Um, these patients aren't cooled in the same fashion intraoperatively as patients who go on bypass. And uh, it's believed that we have fewer post-op complications for patients that um, stay off pump during their heart surgery. So, and those include post-perfusion syndromes, pretty minimized because you're not on pump. Um, fewer strokes occur. 
and uh, fewer renal f uh, numbers of renal failure also occur. So there are in the United States more than 500 cardiac 500,000 excuse me cardiac procedures that occur annually. Men more than women in about a, a ratio of about 70 to 30, and the average age is 64 to 67. So it's mid seventh decade of life. Preoperative risk factors that you as the critical care doctor need to be aware of in your patient and should be um, pretty obvious are a patient that comes in with a decreased EF, especially less than 30%. They have um, higher risk um, both intraoperatively and postoperatively. Patients with left main disease for obvious reasons, they call it the widow maker. Diabetes, renal insufficiency, specifically with a creatinine, baseline creatinine of greater than two. Symptomatic lung disease, also somewhat for obvious reasons, difficulty weaning from um, the ventilator, and simply just being old puts you at a significant risk of uh, more, more morbidity and mortality. So the things that you should consider, um, both with respect to the intra-op and peri-op period, are the type of anesthesia that was used. Just like there's all sorts of different kinds of critical care fellowships, there's all sorts of different kinds of anesthesia fellowships. Um, cardiac anesthesia is done differently than um, many other types of anesthesia. And the literature has started to support the use of dexmedetomidine in the operating room. We found in, um, that's consistent with other uses of dexmedetomidine that these patients who get the interop have um, less requirements of narcotics postoperatively. Hypothermia, how hypothermic your patient got in the OR on bypass. Um, affects contractility post-op and in the periop period pretty dramatically. Cardioplegia can result in hyperkalemia if it's not corrected or um, appropriately administered through the bypass pump. And then how long they spent on cardiopulmonary uh, bypass as well as how long their aorta was cross-clamped. Most of these things, with the exception of the dexmedetomidine, will affect contractility overall and affect how you treat the patient post-operatively and what you should expect. So in the ICU, your patients come up after their procedure, whatever that may have been. Uh, they're on the monitor, and unlike many ICUs, almost every single patient will have a Swan-Gans catheter in place. So you get very familiar and very comfortable using swans, uh, interpreting PA numbers, and uh, following the cardiac index. Indications for a PA, just as a kind of an aside, any patient basically who has any sort of cardiac surgery the exception to that is tricuspid valve surgery. Um, and the exception to interpretation of SWAN numbers is questionable in patients that have significant tricuspid regurge. So those are just kind of things to keep in the back of your mind. We obviously don't use PA catheters as routinely anymore. We have non-invasive ways to monitor um, SVR and all of those things that we can calculate using a PA as well. But they really are indicated in the in cardio uh, cardiac surgery population. So. Things that you want your nurses to be doing while you are assessing the patient postoperatively, getting an EKG, um, and this is, it's an important step, but it's also a little bit um, difficult to interpret. Patients that have just had um, open heart operations, their EKGs don't always look completely normal. They may have evidence of ST elevation. That is a little bit concerning, except it's hard to, it's hard to decipher what that means in this population. So routinely, we also, when we order a battery of labs, we don't get troponins in these patients. And we don't usually, if they complain about chest pain for this following several days, because they've just had their heart cut open, so what, what does that elevated troponin actually reflect? 
but you want to follow their H&H, their platelet count, obviously their post-operative patients. Cardiopulmonary bypass is renowned for affecting your platelet function, chewing them up. A lot of patients come out, in fact, the majority with um, thrombocytopenia. It's very normal. And in any patient, post-operatively, you have a concern for bleeding, so you want to follow their H&H. The cardioplegia that you use is a high potassium solution, so some, many of them come out uh, with a borderline elevated potassium. Most have been corrected. Um, their magnesium, they get high-dose magnesium post-operatively, so a lot of them will come out with mag levels of three or four, or sometimes five, depending. And then you also want to evaluate their coags. Patients who are in uh, the OR for cardiac surgery get pretty significant heparin boluses. Heparin concentrations are checked and routinely reversed using protamine, but oftentimes, um, maybe often's a little generous, sometimes they come out with still an elevated ACT or still some heparin on board, which is contributing to their um, an, an initial post-op coagulopathy. So considering sending a TAG or a fibrinogen if those patients um, look particularly wet or a little bit oozy is not a bad idea. It will help guide you in your resuscitation that first couple hours. So hypothermia, I think in almost any of our patients, regardless of what ICU use uh, or you work in, is an important thing to be aware of. A lot of cardiac surgery patients come out continuing to be hypothermic even though they were technically rewarmed um, prior to coming off the cardiopulmonary bypass circuit. We know that hypothermia has a lot of bad things associated with it, and these things are sort of compounded by the fact that they've spent time on cardiopulmonary bypass and don't have normal uh, coagulation cascades, um, in addition to the fact that it increases your risk of having an arrhythmia in an already irritable cardi uh, myocardium causes uh, vasoconstriction, which can mask hypovolemia and potential like under-resuscitation by your anesthesia colleagues. Shivering increases your oxygen demand in a fresh heart, which is probably something you're not shooting for. And it prolongs both the effects of your anesthesia and, again, your coagulopathy. So aggressive rewarming without overcorrecting is really important because when you overcorrect, you're going to get that vasodilatation in the extremities, and then they're going to drop their blood pressure, and you're going to be kind of scrambling. So how do you manage their blood pressure postoperatively? Immediately with fresh bypass grafts, fresh aortic grafts, fresh valves, you want to shoot, generally speaking, for a MAP goal of 70 to 80. There are patient populations in which this isn't appropriate, and those include patients who come in with uncontrolled hypertension, your aortic dissection who, who probably lives with a systolic of 200 or 220 perhaps. Running them with a goal map of 70 to 80 is probably going to result in stroking them out. So you might want to, in conjunction with your surgeon, make some choices about liberalizing their MAP goals. For the most part, in the majority of the population, maintaining a MAP of 70 to 80 will ensure that you give uh, the kidneys good perfusion and also the brain. So how we do that in the cardiac surgery ICU may be a little bit different than how you guys do that in other ICUs. Hypertension postoperatively is relatively uncommon. Some patients are exclusively hypertensive and they come out using on nitroprusside or nicardipine. We're very much moving to, to the use of nicardipine. Very selectively an arterial vasodilator. And the use of beta blockers to treat hypertension in the immediate post-op period is essentially contraindicated. You should not do it and you should use it extreme caution when you even consider using a beta blocker in these patients. In the acute post-operative period, 
cardiac patients are almost, they almost have a hypersensitivity to beta blockade, and many of them come out on um, inotropes. And so it's, it's completely contradictory to what you're doing with our inotropic um, support. Hypotension in these patients is far more common. It's usually what you're struggling with, and sometimes they fluctuate kind of quickly between hyper and hypotension. Um, it's not uncommon for them to initially come up hypertensive and then end up hypotensive and on pressors. But you have to stop and ask yourself why they're hypotensive. Is it simply because they're under-resuscitated um, and they need more fluid? Probably so. Cardiopulmonary bypass pump, in addition to its hematologic effects of thrombocytopenia, can cause what we, what we call vasoplegia in general, and there's something called the vasoplegic syndrome associated with being on bypass that you um, treat sometimes for a couple of days afterwards. Their vessels are just kind of a little bit lazy and they need some time to tighten back up and so you treat them appropriately for that. Is your patient bleeding and do they need to be resuscitated with blood products? Uh, do they need to have their coagulopathy corrected? Do they need additional factors? Do they need additional uh, protamine given to reverse the heparin that may still be lingering from the operating room? Most importantly, tamponade should be on your differential in any post-cardiac surgery patient. As we'll see in a minute, it occurs very um, quickly sometimes and usually in, in the first 12 to 24 hours of surgery. Tension pneumothorax, these patients, their mediastinum is open. Sometimes they're inadvertently their pleural space is violated and maybe unknowingly they can and occasionally do, although it's not very common, come up with a pneumothorax on chest x-ray. And then lastly, new ischemia or graft occlusion or emboli is something that you should keep in mind, um, although it's lower on the differential and not nearly as common as the uh, above. So how do you deal with it? What do you do when you run through all of those differentials? What do you think about? The first five hours, in general, you want to give some fluid, give some volume. Assume if they're not bleeding, assume if they don't appear to be tamponading that you are just under-resuscitated, that they probably just need a little bit of volume to fill those vasoplegic vessels and they, they should recover. Most of the time that's all you have to do. And we're talking about um, anywhere between 500 to a liter and a half or two liters of fluid in that first several hours sometimes is, is good enough. What you want to do is monitor your CVP and monitor your diastolic, uh, your PA diastolic pressure to see what their response to your volume is. And it's always about trend when you use these numbers. It's not about discrete numbers, um, and every patient comes up with different PA pressures based on their pre-preoperative comorbidities. So the second five hours, you've given your fluid boluses, they're still hypotensive, so now is when you need to start considering giving colloid rather than crystalloid. You've kind of maxed out the crystalloid that you probably should be giving them and maybe give them some blood to see if you can correct their hypotension. Give them some inotropes or some vasopressors. In the cardiac ICU, epinephrine is our first line inotrope. And that's a very different kind of perspective, a different philosophy than most critical care units. Epinephrine is looked at strictly as an inotrope and not as a vasopressor. So we use it for um, inotropy. We titrate it to the cardiac index and not to the blood pressure. Um, and then vasopressin and or levofed are our vasopressors to support the blood pressure. If you're ha strictly having blood pressure issues, you can go to vasopressin. If you think that some of your hypotension is secondary to a low cardiac output, you can give them some additional squeeze and choose epinephrine or sometimes both.
Diminishing contractility. We know that in the post-operative period, sometimes for the first 12 to 24 hours, you can have a depressed EF. There's intra-op, both pre and post TEE that's done. So a patient going in with an EF of 40% who has three bypass grafts done, sometimes their EF post-operatively, before they come upstairs to the ICU, looks great. Sometimes it's improved 10%. So now they have a normal EF and they're not on any vasopressors, they're not on any inotropes, and in that following two to three hours while they're kind of settling out in your ICU, they start to dip a little bit. Their index starts to drop, their blood pressure starts to drop, and that's because we know that microedema occurs within the myocardial cells and can affect the contractility of the heart. So the, even though their EF coming out was 50%, it can drop fairly substantially um, in that first 24 hours. So I kind of referenced the cardiac index with, with respect to the ionotropic use. A standard goal, kind of a, uh, a marker I guess, would be at least 2.2. We know that when you drop below 2.2, especially for a sustained period of time, you start to impair your distal forward flow and you start to have increased risk and you start to see more and more renal failure associated with cardiac surgery. It's probably one of the biggest comorbidities of cardiac surgery is um, AKI or um, failure. So it's important that we try to shoot for that marker using ionotropic support. The outward signs, the other markers that you would use to determine whether or not somebody is actually perfusing, sometimes are difficult to assess. You may have a patient that has some chronic kidney disease that comes in for cardiac surgery, so their urine output isn't what we would consider normal to begin with. So whether or not their urine output is dipping postoperatively may not be too helpful and may not be a good sign of whether or not you're perfusing adequately. Skin modeling, cool extremities, poor peripheral pulses, all of those things are potentially late indicators of poor forward flow. Keep an eye on that cardiac index and um, respond proactively and before you're actually in trouble. So kind of a grid to help guide you when you are potentially rotating with us in the unit. These are kind of where patients will fall. The majority fall in the low cardiac index, low blood pressure category, that top left box. So for their index, you want to throw them on a little bit of epi, help their squeeze, help their uh, forward flow. You'll also um, tighten up some of those peripheral vessels as you add levo and vaso for their blood pressure. The other thing that epi does is improves your chronotropy. So we know that cardiac output is um, stroke volume and heart rate. So if you can improve their heart rate a little bit, you can potentially improve their cardiac output. Low heart rate, low cardiac index, kind of a conundrum. Beautiful thing in cardiac surgery is most of our patients come out with epicardial leads. So you can plug them in, pace them up, you can improve their cardiac output, and sometimes that's all you need, and both their blood pressure and index will respond appropriately. If not, then you want to figure out uh, what additional medications you want to put on board. After load reduction is the kind of first line choice, so nicardipine or nitroprusside uh, that we use. They're kind of quick on, quick off. So if you get into that patient who's pretty labile, you can turn it off and know that their blood pressure will come back up in a quick fashion. And then we'll talk about high heart rate in a minute. It's not that common. Um, and when I talk about high, I don't mean 100. I mean like 130, 140. These are inotropes on the top and then uh, most commonly used vasopressors on the bottom. Uh, we kind of touched on epinephrine already. Dibutamine, uh, I guess, would be considered a second-line medication. 
And then milrinone, also a second line medication depending upon the etiology of the patient's um, heart failure or their overall function. Dopamine we don't use in the cardiac surgery ICU, especially in the perioperative period. Dopamine is pretty arrhythmogenic and it also can cause you to diurese, right? You have dopaminergic receptors in your kidneys, so a lot of times you put them on dopamine and they start peeing dramatically, which can fight against you if you're trying to fluid resuscitate somebody. So we, we hesitate to use dopamine in our patient population kind of in general. But epidibutamine and milrinone, um, milrinone also is probably not a drug that a lot of you are familiar with or use frequently. It's a, a phosphodiesterase inhibitor and it does have effects on the peripheral vascular resistance as well as the pulmonary vascular bed. It vasodilates them out. So although it can be very synergistic with your epinephrine and your other catecholamines with chronotropy and inotropy, um, it does sometimes cause some peripheral vascular uh, vasodilatation, so it can drop your blood pressure a little bit. Norepi, phenylephrine, and vasopressin we're all pretty familiar with. Vasos are first line because usually our patients are vasoplegic, so this is the perfect medication for them. It's a great vasoconstrictor. Complications of epinephrine. They're not that common, but things that you should certainly be aware of. If you have unexplained acidosis uh, or hyperlactemia that you can't seem to clear, uh, despite you feeling like you've adequately resuscitated the patient. And although these aren't dose dependent, the duration of time a patient is on these medications certainly can contribute to kind of a, a development of a hyperlactemia and a metabolic acidosis as a result. Hyperglycemia is very common in patients on epinephrine, so even your non-diabetics postoperatively will come up on an insulin drip and epinephrine. And epinephrine, by nature of its catecholaminergic properties, um, makes you a little bit hyperglycemic, but also its carrier is uh, dextrose, so um, you're getting quite a sugar load there. So I also kind of touched on this a minute ago, your goal heart rate in your patients who come up. Heart rate and stroke volume make your cardiac index. Most patients don't come up bradycardic unless they've had a valve surgery. Sometimes that's a complication and they'll come up paced with those epicardial leads, usually around 70 to 80, depending upon their blood pressure and their index. But you wanna shoot for a goal heart rate somewhere between 80 and 100 is probably a more liberal way to say that. But you definitely don't want your cardiac patients to be bradycardic because of exactly the stroke volume and heart rate, the cardiac output. And you don't want them to be excessively tachycardic either because although it's usually just the sympathetic drive postoperatively and it usually resolves on its own, it increases the myocardial demand and can, can result in ischemia. Um, hope, hopefully not though. Uh, but again, a warning about giving beta blockers in this population. You should really hesitate to do it until you're off all inotropy. You know they're hemodynamically stable without any other uh, support. And, um, and then it's probably the appropriate time to add it back. Dysrhythmias in the postoperative period, VFib or VTAC, should immediately make you think ischemia. Uh, they're not very common, um, and it usually indicates that there's something wrong with one of the graphs. That's, it's gone down or something. So um, you should definitely be in contact with your surgeon immediately. We'll talk about ACLS in the postoperative cardiac patient in just a second. Atrial dysrhythmias, on the other hand, are very common. 20 to 60% of patients have them at some point in the first 48 hours. The myocardium is very irritated. A lot of these patients end up hypervolemic at some point. The atrium is stretched. It's also irritated. So um, AFib is very common. 
It does have um, a negative impact on the patient, obviously, increased uh, hospital length of stay and CVA risk. So how do we treat them? Since they're so common, we're quite used to it. Uh, you make sure that everything is up to snuff with respect to their electrolytes, their potassium's pushed to four and a half, their mag is good, their calcium's repleted, so you don't have any component of electrolyte imbalance that's contributing to the AFib or a flutter. Again, this is a little different than what we're used to. We're, we've been trained recently to control the rate and not necessarily the rhythm, but in this population, if they didn't have preoperative AFib, you want to try and get them out of that AFib as quickly as possible and most of the time they will respond. So the first line medication that we use is Amiel, and this is assuming that your patient is hemodynamically stable with their AFib. Obviously, if they're not stable, you cardiovert them. But Amiel uh, doesn't usually, it doesn't have a significant hemodynamic effect. Uh, you can bolus it repeatedly without starting a drip, and, and usually they convert. You can see a little bit of hypotension with it, but it's usually the rate at which you're giving the medication. So if you see that, you just slow the administration down and usually it resolves without any difficulty. But it's definitely the preferred medication in your post-op afibers. If they're completely refractory or they have a, a true contraindication to AMEO, um, you can consider digoxin. There was a recent study, I think about two weeks ago, that came out in the American the Journal of Cardiology that said there's a higher mortality with patients that are maintained on digoxin. This is an acute issue. Those patients were maintained um, on it chronically. So if you can dig load them, get them out of the abnormal rhythm, and then you don't have to necessarily continue it. We treat patients who stay in uh, AFib or in and out of AFib with AMEO, assuming they're responsive, for about a month or so uh, postoperatively. Again, if they're outside of that 24-hour window, uh, they're stable, they're not on any inotropic support, you can consider give them a giving them a beta blocker um, at that point. And then, uh, you know, obvious uh, routine choices about anticoagulation if they are not converting to sinus. So I've kind of touched on a lot of these things and a lot of them are strictly from the cardiopulmonary bypass pump. It's a wonderful asset intraoperatively obviously it allows us to do the surgeries that we do but it comes with its own set of evils. We, there's something called pump head. A lot of patients that have long cardiopulmonary bypass runs wake up and they're confused or altered or they're not quite back to themselves and it's not necessarily ICU delirium quite yet. But it's very normal. We don't really understand it fully. Uh, we think that maybe there's little microemboli uh, that you shower with while you're on the pump, but it usually clears over the following couple days. In addition to that, you end up with all of the other things, including the thrombocytopenia, the coagulopathy, most patients receive some blood, maybe some FFP, and I would say the majority of patients also receive platelets coming off the bypass pump. They all come up on Amicar, um, which is also something that I, I had never really given prior to my experience in the cardiac surgery ICU. So postoperative bleeding in your patient who comes up straight from the OR is definitely a concern. Most of them are bleeding to a certain degree for all the reasons we talked about repeatedly today. Less than 500 milliliters is very common. When you hit greater than 1,000 out of their chest tubes is when you start to get really uncomfortable. It usually subsides on its own and sometimes with the use of products. 
and that's because most of the bleeding is medical. It's usually coagulopathic in nature and will dry up once that coagulopathy is, is corrected. The literature supports hematocrits um, in the general population of around 21% transfusion uh, when they go lower than that. In the cardiac surgery population and the, and the true cardiac population, those uh, goals are a little bit higher. And we maintain a goal here around 24% hematocrit. So when to intervene with respect to their bleeding? It's kind of anything that would make you nervous coming out of their chest tubes, you should probably let your sur surgeon know about. But about 100 an hour or 200 over two hours immediately post-operative is concerning for potential surgical bleeding. The longer that they've been on the bypass pump, the longer that they've had the aorta, their aorta cross-clamped, the more coagulopathic they're going to be. So while you're picking up the phone to call your surgeon because your patient's bleeding, you should also be requesting platelets in addition to blood cells. Um, and you should also be checking those labs that hopefully you sent, your TEG, your fibrinogen, your heparin concentration if you're that concerned that they weren't completely reversed in the operating room with protamine. So you transfuse while you're on the phone, consider repeated doses of protamine even if you don't have that information, you can give them additional doses of protamine um, to correct any sort of suspected coagulopathy. And then as a last stitch effort, you can give them factor seven while they're on their way back to the operating room. So if you have a high suspicion for tamponade or if your patient is bleeding to the degree that we just talked about, they should be going back without a doubt just for a second look, just to make sure that everything that we are suspecting is really just coagulopathy and that there isn't anything actually surgical that uh, they need to correct. Rarely do they actually find anything that's surgically bleeding, but um, a lot of stuff is just kind of generally oozy. So tamponade is another very real, although uncommon, experience in your post-op cardiac patient. You have to have a high index of suspicion, so their pericardium is open as a result of their surgery. So when you take an echo probe and you look at their chest, an ultrasound probe, you're not gonna see the normal, nice, round, full pericardial effusion that's gonna suggest tamponade. You can see some cardiac dysfunction, some um, compression of the right ventricle perhaps, but a lot of times the tamponade starts in the back and then works its way around, and it's usually blood, as you would expect postoperatively. So the things that you need to keep on your radar for potential signs and symptoms of tamponade since your ultrasound probe isn't going to be nearly as helpful um, is somebody who's got very labile blood pressures. And you heard me say a little bit ago, sometimes our patients are labile and it's not because they have tamponade. So that's a hard thing to decipher. But when you look at that in a patient who has maybe a persistently low cardiac index despite you putting them on ionotropic support, despite you pacing them up to a heart rate that's a a reasonable place to be to help that output. This should start ringing a little red flag in your head. Sudden oliguria in a patient who is otherwise urinating without um, any issues. And then when a patient stops putting out blood from their chest tube altogether that was previously draining quite normally. Lastly, not that common is upper torso plethora. It's kind of um, a the textbook kind of random answer. You don't often see it either. And because of that open pericardium, the TTE and the TEE can be falsely negative. So if you're concerned about it, if you have a patient that's refractory to your treatment and you can't explain why, then you should contact your surgeon and tell them that you're concerned. In the patient who does come up to you and has a cardiac arrest, 
ACLS is done using a clipboard if you have one handy. You want to protect that sternotomy that you just sewed shut, okay? You don't get as good of compressions, um, but fortunately, as I kind of alluded to already, you can initiate pacing in a lot of uh, patients. So if they start to brady uh, right before they arrest, you can try and pace them up. If they actually arrest though, you should start compressions if you don't have pads readily available. If you have pads readily available, put them on the patient and defibrillate as quickly as possible. In some instances, um, if they have any refractory uh, ventricular tachycardia or V-fib arrest, opening the chest at the bedside can sometimes actually be all that's necessary. If you have an undiagnosed tamponade causing the problem, um, or a compartment syndrome of the chest in general. When they go to close the chest in the operating room, before they uh, sew the wires or uh, twist the wires closed, they maintain, um, they make sure that the CVP is maintained, that the patient doesn't desat, that their plateau pressures don't increase, all of those things are peak pressure, excuse me, so as to give them an indication that there is enough space to close their chest, that they won't create a thoracic compartment syndrome. Sometimes that doesn't manifest right away. And then if there's any sort of kinkage or stretch of the arterial grafts, um, that can certainly cause ventricular irritability and arrest. Since I would say the mid 90s, maybe late 90s, we've done this fast track approach to patients with pretty straightforward um, need for cabbage, no significant uh, comorbidities, um, but it's designed to minimize the direct effect of surgery and to get them out of the hospital as quickly as possible. 85 to 90% of patients who are put in this fast track recovery leave the ICU within 24 hours and they are discharged after approximately five days from the hospital after coronary artery bypass. This is only with respect to bypass surgery. So just sort of an interesting uh, mentality. It's like quick in and out the, I guess the less is more perhaps mentality that if we don't, we don't mess with you, hopefully you'll get better and, and get out of the hospital. So prognosis for most of our patients depends upon how uh, healthy or ill they were coming into the hospital. Obviously, if you come in with any or all of these, as many of our patients in Baltimore have, your prognosis is probably not as um, delightful as you or I undergoing cardiac surgery. So you have to look at those factors, and then any patient who leaves our unit after having bypass surgery leaves on the following medications. Sometimes an ACE inhibitor, but before they leave the hospital, they should be on an ACE inhibitor or an ARB. Plavix is usually the choice of the cardiac surgeon operating on them. Uh, whether or not they choose to add that in addition to aspirin or not. So what's the patency of the grafts? Um, arterial grafts are 80% at eight years, pretty good. That's why we try and uh, always use at least one of the internal mammaries if possible. Saphenous vein grafts, which are the most commonly used vein grafts, are 75% at five years and then less than 50 at 10 to 15 years. So also not terrible, but certainly arterial grafts are better. Some cardiac surgeons are starting to use radial arteries as additional um, arterial grafts rather than using venous grafts if possible. The mortality overall is pretty, pretty slim. Probably gonna get out of the hospital if you don't have a whole lot of other medical problems. And if you're a first time operative candidate, you're probably gonna be fine. But um, any additional redo operations, redo sternotomies, just like redo abdominal surgeries are going to be more complicated because of adhesions and um, usually just more bleeding as a result. Um, Dr. Shanholtz. 
with respect to the randomized controlled trials that indicate whether or not there's a certain population of person that will do well being put on VA ECMO, um, I don't think that there are any um, not randomized controls. How we decide to put someone on VA ECMO, uh, usually if they are a patient that fails to wean from bypass, has uh, ventricular arrhythmias, or develops ventricular failure, whether or not it's left ventricular or right ventricular failure post-operatively in that immediate post-operative period as they're trying to come off bypass, VA ECMO is something that they will consider as a temporizing measure in order for their cardiac function to kind of recover. It's, you know, it's total um, cardio, cardiac support and allows for that myocardium to rest and hopefully heal in a fairly acute period. All right, well, um, we'll look forward to seeing some or and or all of you in our unit this year.